My name is Vladislav Zubok, professor of uh, London School of Economics, Department of International History, and director of Russia and International Affairs Program. Um, our guest today is Alexander Pantsov, my uh, old and good friend, born in Moscow and educated in the Soviet Union. Uh, he worked uh, all the way up to become deputy director of the Institute of uh, Asian and African Studies at the Moscow State University, my alma mater, and then he moved to the United States and uh, he's currently Edward and Mary Catherine Gerhold Chair in Humanities at Capital University in Columbus, Ohio. He uh, is the author of numerous publications. Uh, I would mention just two major publications. Uh, Mao, The Real Story, published by Simon & Schuster a few years ago, and uh, the last book just about to be published? Hopefully the latest. Hopefully. Not the last. And not the last, but the latest. Dan Xiaopina, Revolutionary Life. And uh, uh, Alexander uh, prepared some slides. Uh, we, uh, we are here for one hour and a half, so we'll start with the lecture, and then uh, there will be, I hope, about 30 minutes for uh, questions and answers. Alexander Panso. Thank you. Uh, good evening, <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen. Uh, first of all, I would like to uh, extend my deep appreciation to Dr. Vlad Zubuk and uh, to members of faculty and staff at your most respected school for inviting me over. I am delighted to be here. Thank you so much. And uh, I would also uh, like to thank uh, my friend Vlad Zubuk, uh, who uh, is one of the few persons in the English language world who pronounces my name correctly. <laughs> yeah, most uh, Americans uh, and even some British people mispronounce my name as Pensov. I'm not Pensov, I'm Pansov. Uh, a few words about myself, uh, as Vlad Zubok already mentioned, uh, I, uh, indeed I was born in uh, Moscow some quite time ago, and in 1978 I graduated from Moscow State University Institute of Asian and African Studies. It's kind of like analogous uh, uh, to uh, SOAS at uh, London University. So I majored in Chinese studies, and uh, uh, we studied everything that looks, sounds, uh, sounds uh, Chinese. Then I traveled to China, and uh, in the 1980s, um, 1990s, I studied uh, the roots of uh, Stalinism and uh, uh, the Soviet and Comintern influence on uh, um, China. That was my primary uh, field of interest. And uh, uh, I published at that time a few books and uh, some articles, and uh, including uh, the book that was published here in London uh, in English, that's The Bolsheviks and the Chinese Revolution, it was published in 2000. In 2001, it was uh, translated, I translated the book into Russian and published it in Russia under the uh, title The Secret History of the Sino-Soviet Relation. I changed the title because my Russian publisher said that nobody will buy the book under this title, so it should be intriguing, you see, to entice the audience. So 
Yeah, secret history sound, you know, he said it sounds good. So anyway, uh, probably I did the right thing that I changed the name because uh, uh, the book was sold out. And a uh, uh, few years after that, I got a call, uh, actual email from a person I didn't know. He was uh, uh, an editor in a very well-known publishing house in Moscow, Maladaya Gvardia. It's the, one of the oldest publishing houses in Russia. It began to publish books since the middle of the 19th century, and it focuses on biographies. Okay, it's a series of biographies of uh, outstanding people. And uh, I got an email from an editor who wrote that he read my book, uh, The Secret History, and he made me an offer to write a book about Mao Zedong, a biography of Mao Zedong, never been published, never been written and published in Russia. So I answered that, uh, yeah, it's a good idea because, you know, since I've been in Chinese studies for 20 years already, and it's like a role of Hamlet for an actor to write a book on Mao Zedong. So I accepted an offer, and uh, uh, then uh, uh, I published this book in Russian. It looks like this. This is the design of the series, and uh, then uh, uh, I signed another contract to publish a book on Deng Xiaoping, like a sequel to my Mao book. So in the meantime, when I began to work on Deng Xiaoping book, a friend of mine, uh, an American uh, scholar, uh, pretty famous, his name is Stephen I. Levin, he visited me in my house, and I gave him this book as a gift. He knows Russian, and uh, he looked at the book said, uh, Sasha, Sasha is my short name, Alexander Sasha. Sasha, I will translate the book into English. I said, look, it's a huge book. Uh, manuscript was 1,200 pages. So uh, I said that I'm busy with dense Alpine book, so I will not be able to, to, to translate that. He said, I will translate it. He just retired, at, actually, at that time. Had nothing to do. So he got my book and uh, did translate it, and uh, that's the book published in uh, um, uh, 2012, Mal, the Real Story. Uh, so um, that's a huge volume published with Simon & Schuster. Uh, then I uh, finished the book on Dense Alpine, and published this book, this is Dan Xiaoping, published in Russian uh, in 2013, so two years ago. And again, Stephen said I will uh, translate it, and he did a marvelous job, he translated the book, and they began to write another book. So I'm in the middle of another book, it's a book on Chiang Kai-shek. So it's based on newly uh, founded diaries of Chiang Kai-shek uh, from uh, Hoover Institution and from my interviews with uh, very interesting people. Just yesterday I interviewed a great daughter, a great uh, uh, granddaughter of Chiang Kai-shek, and so it's quite, I, I, I'm quite involved in this book. So in the meantime, we are going to publish this book. It's Dan Xiaoping. It's coming out in April. Unfortunately, you know, it will be in April, not in March, otherwise I would bring the copies, you know. But it will be published in two, three weeks with Oxford University Press. And this is Dan Alpine, Revolutionary Life. 
So, uh, in Russia, some reviewers called my book on Dan Xiaoping a Russian biography of Dan Xiaoping. It is probably true. Not only did I pay lots of attention to the Soviet and commenter influences on Dan, but I also tried to understand the Chinese experiment in comparison with the Russian one, in all their complexities, similarities, and uh, divergences. Anyway, I'm Russian, and the uh, traumas uh, Russia has experienced in the 20th or 21st centuries are no less intriguing and painful for me than the Chinese one. Today I will summarize some basic uh, conclusions of my book, which I think uh, might help us uh, better understand not only China's economic successes under then, but also the Soviet failures under Gorbachev. The book is based on private files on top Chinese leaders, as well as other sources from the former uh, secret archives of the Soviet Communist Party and the Comintern. I came to these archives, and this is the building in downtown Moscow, the Russian State Archives of Social and Political History. I came to these archives in 1990, a year before the Yeltsin Revolution, and uh, soon I got an access to all collections, including the collections of private documents relating to the Chinese communists. I should explain. Uh, for years, for... Um, for 70 years, the archives had been uh, the uh, biggest depository of documents on the Soviet Communist Party and the International Communist Movement. Since the Comintern controlled the International Communist Movement, so uh, there is a huge section on the history of the Chinese Communist Party. Actually, the Chinese uh, um, uh, leaders in the 1920s, 1930s, and even in the uh, early 1940s under Mao, they uh, sent uh, all copies of all major decisions to Moscow. So uh, the archives in China and the People's Republic of China, the communist archives are still closed for outsiders. But if you want to study the history of the Chinese communist movement, go to Moscow. Because you can find everything there. You know, indeed, they... Uh, it's not only Chinese top leaders, but uh, uh, in the 20s, every uh, local party organization, they send a copy of their major decisions to the Central Committee, to the archives, and one copy would go to Moscow. Here in Moscow, they will be uh, uh, you know, storage in the archives and translated into Russian, sometimes in German, because it was an official language of the Comintern, sometimes in French, so you can find numerous documents about everything. And uh, uh, the most interesting section of the archives uh, is the uh, um, section that is still uh, um, uh, in secret and it's not opened for most scholars. I enjoy some privileges because I've been working in this archives for over 20 years and I have friends there. You know, like Chinese say, Guanxi. Mm, so if you have Guanxi, you can do everything. The same in Russia, you see. So uh, that's why, you know, they give me everything I want. At that time, when I came to the archives, 1990, 1991, a year before the Yeltsin Revolution and the year after the Yeltsin Revolution, we had no law on the archives. 
you see, everything was new. The communist regimes collapsed, crumbled and collapsed. And uh, the new authorities, they didn't know what they can give to the, uh, you know, uh, readers. Or I remember that uh, uh, I came to the director, new director of the archives. He came from the Academy of Science, so he was not a party official. And uh, uh, I came to him and said, look, I know, because my friends told me, you see, uh, that you had a secret section of private dossier, private files. You know, whenever any foreigner ever crossed the border of the Soviet Union, the KGB immediately began to collect documents, you know, sensitive documents, information, and stuff like this on this person. And stuff. So uh, members of the Communist Party, revolutionary nationalist, whoever, okay? And I knew they had this section, but nobody ever had an access to this section under the communists. So I came to him shortly after the Yeltsin Revolution and said, how about if you give me an access to this file? He looked at me and said, why not? And signed my, you know, my application. He signed it to give it to me. I was so happy, you can't imagine. Some uh, uh, people, uh, you know, at that time in Russia, they probably, they were much cleverer than me uh, because uh, they would take part in the division of uh, Russia's property, you know, gas, oil, arms, you, you see, to enrich themselves to make a killing. But I found myself very happy, you know, in the archives because I got... Thousands of them. Actually, this uh, depository contains 1.5 million written documents and photographs and movies and stuff like this. So, um, among the documents I worked with in these private uh, uh, files, I found 15 volumes, 15 private dossier of Mao Zedong. So, nobody ever had an access to these files. And uh, uh, I worked with these documents, and at that time I could even copy and, and stuff like this. Various kind of documents. Uh, you know, when Mao traveled to the Soviet Union in 1949, uh, he uh, was examined by the Russian doctors. So all medical records of Mao Zedong. Uh, his wife, Jiang uh, Xin, also uh, stayed in the Soviet Union. and. Uh, wife were examined, and uh, uh, his uh, um, third wife, uh, wife Hedzen Jane, lived in the Soviet Union, was in psycho clinic, so there are many other documents, including uh, uh, special dispatches uh, uh, by the Soviet spies attached to Mao Zedong. Like his personal physician, Andrei Arlov, was a spy and informed Moscow about uh, Mao Zedong regularly. So I found this information in the archives and already published in this book, Mao, The Real Story. And uh, many other information, some uh, uh, information from inside the Communist Party, like people like Wang Ming. Uh, they also sent uh, secret information uh, about Mao Zedong, about his uh, so-called Trotskyist activity, uh, and, and so on. So that's quite interesting. And there are personal files of uh, uh, persons like Joe and Lai, very interesting files. Uh, Wang Min and John uh, Wenqiang and Chen Yun and Kung Jane and many, 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 many. 
Gauguin. Uh, so um, actually, altogether, there are 3,328 personal files. 3,328. Uh, most of them are, uh, you know, files of the, of the Chinese communist leaders, but there are also files of Jiang Kai-shek and uh, Jiang Jingo and uh, many other, uh, uh, you know, uh, Deng Wenyi, many other Guomindan um, nationalist, uh, uh, you know, acti activists who studied in Russia, visited Russia, and so on. So, um, uh, I also used, uh, in addition to uh, the Russian documents, of course I used many Chinese documents, Thanks to uh, my Chinese colleagues, they published a lot. Uh, I mean, uh, archival documents, uh, correspondence between uh, Deng Xiaoping and many other people. And uh, of course, I used uh, memoirs of people who knew Mao Zedong, including his family members and uh, uh, his daughters and uh, his sons and uh, his bodyguard and his wife and secretary and so on. And I also used dispatches of Russian diplomats who uh, worked in the Russian embassies in Beijing and Washington, D.C. In part, I found from the former secret reports that Dan was not a member of Joy and Light group, that many people believed. And he was not a member of Liu Shaozi group, as also many people believe. Uh, he had his own military faction that simply collaborated with uh, Joe with Joe's men and the government against the gang of four. Xi Jinping, Jiang Xing, and, uh, you know, Jiang Wen, um, Yao Wenyuan, and so on. So he didn't care about Joe. He just used him as he used other persons throughout his career. The biography of Dan is an objective study written in the same style as my previous book, Real Story. The same balanced approach to its subject is employed, one that uh, neither exalts Dan as a paragon of reform, nor dismisses him as merely one of the butchers of Beijing. Unlike many Dan biographers, I show that Dan was not only an outstanding revolutionary leader, a great economic and social reformer, a talented strategist and tactician, and a skillful political organizer, but also a bloody dictator who, along with Mao, was responsible for the deaths of millions of innocent people due to the terrible social reforms in the 1950s and unprecedented famine of 1958-62. After Mao's death, then incurred everlasting shame as the murder of China's young fighters for democracy on the streets of Beijing in June 1989. Dan's importance in modern Chinese history merits such a detailed and objective assessment. My book is not a political pamphlet, but rather the results of many years of painstaking scholarly research presented in a narrative style that might be interesting and absorbing for a general reader. In attempting to recreate a concrete historical situation in which Dan Mao and all their friends and foes operated, I try to avoid being biased by political prejudice of the right and uh, or the left. It is the only way to understand uh, the people who have lived before us correctly. It is the only way to respect history. If one starts writing history from one's political point of view, it will never be an objective historical record, but rather a political accusation. Uh, and I don't think that I lose a moral compass here because, uh, you know, history is full of blood. 
When you turn over pages of history, you feel blood on your fingers. So how can we assess Napoleon or Henry VIII or Chiang uh, Kai-shek? They're not just bloody dictators. You see, people are full of contradictions, black and white. Okay, only probably Jesus Christ. You know, that's the only uh, you know saying. But he was the Son of God. You see, but all other people they're quite uh, you know controversial. And then, of course, you know, uh, um, made lots of positive, you know, had lots of positive achievements. Uh, the reduction of poverty in China by 50%. He also set China on the path uh, toward greater interrogation in the international system as was responsible for making China what it is now. But he was by no means a liberal. And by the end of his life, he had even become as capricious and intolerant of different views as Mao. Although in the late uh, 1970s, he began to demolish the Maoist utopia by raising the slogan of seek, through, uh, seek truth, truth from facts, uh, by the late 1980s, he had started considering himself the ultimate source of truth. It was this metamorphosis that caused his conflict not only with some of the closest members of his entourage, but also with a significant part of Chinese society that believed in his early liberal programs. I showed then that someone who throughout his entire career had been not only a devoted Communist Party member, but also a true party bureaucrat who always believed that the end justified the means. During the revolutionary years, the land reform period, the struggle for socialism, the cultural revolution. People were important to him only as instruments for achieving his goals. Such fundamental virtues as human dignity, pride, and principle meant nothing to him. Uh, it is not astonishing that Mao considered him a great talent and his best disciple, even though then periodically offended and frustrated him. Uh, I show in the book that actually then had been always very loyal to Mao Zedong until 1976. Some people believe that he began to distance himself from Mao in the 50s during the Great Leap and stuff like this. This is not true, not correct. Even during the Cultural Revolution, in spite of the fact he, he suffered a lot, and his son broke his uh, uh, neck, uh, broke his spine, and uh, his wife suffered from a high blood pressure, and his uh, other children worked in uh, uh, people's communes, he still was loyal to Mao and dedicated and devoted to Mao and sent him uh, self-humiliating letters, you see. So, uh, then acknowledged that he did not really understand economics. Yet also, like Mao, he still imposed his economic views on the party and society. The theory of reform and opening that then developed several years after Mao's death in the late 1970s and early 1980s did not originate with him. It was rooted in the Russian Bolshevik Nikolai Ivanovich Bukharin's interpretation of Lenin's new economic policy aimed at developing a market economy under the control of the Communist Party. Then started this concept in the mid-1920s in Moscow during his sojourn as a student, the Comintern School, and began implementing it as soon as he solidified power. 
Among other documents in the archives, I found two volumes of Densiapian file that, of course, I used. Okay, again, the same kind of documents. When then arrived uh, in Moscow in 1926 to study at uh, uh, Sunyatsen University of the Tolers of the East, immediately they opened dossier. <laughs> they gave him the Russian name, Ivan Sergeyevich Dazorov, <laughs> and if you go to Russia, so it would be pointless to search for Densia Alpine personal file. They don't know these kind of files. There is a file under the name Ivan Sergeyevich Dazorov. Like, basically all Chinese they had, for secrecy, you know, all of them changed uh, names. The comments or officials gave them either Jewish names or Russian names, okay? There was even a student named Stalin, okay? <laughs> so, uh, Did and, he survive? Uh, yeah. Okay. So, uh, just want to show you, maybe you will be interested, some documents, including dense Alpine files. This is Mao Zedong personal file. Mao Zedong, of course, the first time came to you know, Russia in 1949. But uh, these documents, uh, uh, this is questionnaire for the common term, filled in by his younger brother, Mao Zemin. Mao Zemin worked in the Comintern, okay? and uh, uh, he, uh, on the request of the Comintern, he filled out this questionnaire for Mao Zedong answered questions. Okay? He knew some answers, but he didn't know some other answers. For example, about his new wife, he said, I never met Zhang Xin, so I don't know how she looked like. Okay? But, uh, um, Okay, this is the end of the questionnaire, and this is autobiography, allegedly, by Mao Zedong, but written by Mao Zemin, his younger brother. When Mao Zedong's wife, the third wife, he had four wives, okay, in consecutive order, of course, so uh, four wives, so the third wife, had the Jane arrived in Moscow, and uh, they also asked her to write what she knew about Mao Zedong. So she wrote at her handwriting, she wrote about Mao Zedong, and you see the signature, Hood Zedong, and then her uh, name, uh, she lived in, Mas in Russia under a false name, Wen Yun. Wen Yun. So uh, again, her file is in Moscow archives, but not under Hot Zhejiang, her real name, but under Wen Yun. Okay. And uh, uh, I found also very interesting documents. I think I included. Yeah, this is a very interesting document. I found this document uh, in her personal file. Uh, this is a, a document, a certificate, medical certificate that asserts that she gave birth to a baby boy in Moscow. So when she came to Moscow, she was pregnant from Mao Zedong. So probably she didn't know about it, that she was pregnant. Uh, she was about one month, something like this, when she traveled. But before she came to Moscow, she broke with Mao Zedong. Okay, it was, uh, you're interested, uh, maybe you know this story. If not, I'm ready to answer this probably after this lecture. Because, uh, you know, my students know that, uh, yeah, my, yeah, that's exactly what I, exactly, exactly, yeah. What about Dan versus Gorbachev? So be patient, yeah. Uh, but 
my students know that when I start talking, it's very difficult to stop me. So I, I can sorry. do it. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, just I'll finish with this uh, interesting document, and they will speak about Garbachev. So uh, uh, she gave birth to a baby boy. You see, uh, was born in Russia. Unfortunately, in nine months, he died. So, okay. Uh, as we know, Chinese started their reforms a few years earlier than the Russians. Not even in 1978, as many people believe, but in 1977. By the time Gorbachev assumed power in 1985, it had become obvious that the Chinese reforms had already brought tangible results. So we will not... Okay, this is the Alpine file. Okay. This is his characteristic, okay, his wives, okay. So, um, uh, from 1978 to 1984, a steady growth in GDP in the PRC had occurred, averaging 8.8% per year, 66% for the whole period. The PRC had not previously experienced such growth. During the same period, the annual volume of industrial uh, production grew by more than 78%, including 66% in heavy industry, and almost 98% in light industry. The share of foreign capital investment and the volume of overall investment was still small, about 4% in 1984, but it was a bit more than direct Soviet investment in the economy of the PRC during the first five-year plan. It was 3%. And special economic zones, Shenzhen, Zhuhai, Semen, and Shainthou flourished. On the 4th of May 1984, a resolution was adopted to establish special economic zones in 14 uh, port cities, including Shanghai, Tianjin, and Canton. These cities were given the name Economic and Technological Development Zones, but their essence did not change too much from the special economic zones. The most favorable conditions for attracting foreign capital were created in all of them. In particular, taxes and profits adopted were lowered by to 15%. Even state-owned enterprises were actually drawn into the market economy, receiving ever greater freedom with regard to the above plan production. At the same time, banks acquired the right to engage in commercial activity and shifted to providing credit to enterprises. This also expanded the sphere of market regulation. From the fall of 1984, state-owned enterprises were allowed to use a dual price system for market production and production according to the plan. Overall, the market quickly began to conquer economic space, which demanded that further uh, thought be given to the cause of reforms. On the 9th of September 1984, Zhao Ziyang, Prime Minister, sent a letter to Huiaoban, General Secretary, to Deng Xiaoping, Li Xianyang, and Xinyun, in which, based on suggestions from econo uh, economists, he sketched a new conception of the mutual relations between plan and market regulation. He emphasized the need to uh, replace comments with guided planning, which should mainly be regulated by economic methods. In 1984, a record grain harvest was achieved, over 407 million tons, which was more than 100 million ton, tons above 1978. At that moment, even the reformers weren't teasy. Nobody knew what to do with such a colossal amount of grain because the government had no money to pay the peasants and they had no uh, granaries. 
to uh, you know store. Uh, yeah, for this grain. Therefore, on the 1st of January 1985, the State Council declared that from now on, the state would not assume the obligation to purchase grain produced in excess of the plan. This led to a slight decline in grain production by a little over 28 million tons in 1985 but simultaneously facilitated the further development of uh, monetized commodity relations in the countryside. By 1985, the uh, median income of the rural population had increased by more than one and a half times, and the average wages of workers and employees by roughly 60%. To be sure, 125 million people, or 15%, remained in the category of absolutely poor. But then had never said that everyone would become well-to-do at once. Nevertheless, the number of those suffering from hunger was cut in half. By the spring of 1985, all the people's communes were gone. Needless to say, Gorbachev and other Soviet reformers knew all this. At that time, I worked in the Russian Academy of Science, Institute of Comparative Political Science, and uh, uh, we all started the reforms, Chinese reforms. So, of course, uh, you know, we knew about it, and uh, Gorbachev knew about it, and also the rulers knew about it. We know that Gorbachev paid lots of attention to Dan and respected him very much. Of all foreign leaders, I quote from Gorbachev, of all foreign leaders, I admire Dan Xiaoping the most. We here in Russia did not have Dan Xiaoping, said he in 2004, then he attended uh, uh, Reagan's funeral. Thus, at first sight, one might think that Gorbachev, in the middle of the 1980s, could simply paraphrase Mao Zedong's famous expression, and instead of Mao's follow the path of the Russians, he was simply supposed to say, follow the path of the Chinese, that is the conclusion. However, in 1989, after four years of reforms, the Soviet Union was in a deep economic crisis and experienced profound food shortages. The Soviets didn't follow the Chinese way in economic reforms. On the contrary, they seemed to try their best to reform um, their political system, to promote democracy and liberalism that ultimately threatened the very existence of the totalitarian Soviet state. So it is not astonishing that in May 1989, after his meeting with Gorbachev, Dan Xiaopin said to his translator, Gorbachev may look very smart, but in, he, in fact he's very stupid. <laughs> That's for our Chinese friends, Gorbachev uh, uh, Indeed, he said it to his translator, and later he would repeat it uh, to the members of his family many times. That Gorbachev was then correct? I don't think so. Things in both countries were not that simple. Russia is not China. Therefore, it could not have followed the Chinese path of transformation. First, in spite of the fact that both reforms began with the same change, that is the emancipation of consciousness or glassness, then and Gorbachev had different reasons for doing this. Then began talking positively about liberalism before he returned to power. In February 1977, he launched a campaign against the so-called two whatevers, advocated by Chairman Huago Fan. 
I want to emphasize this because in comparison with Gorbachev, who initiated his reforms when he was in power, then was not in power. This is a crucial difference, you see. So, Huago Fenn asserted, we will resolutely defend whatever political decisions were taken by Chairman Mao. We will follow whatever directives were issued by Chairman Mao. At that time, then, countered his notion with a slogan, seek truth from facts. In May 1978, he begged Huyao who initiated the publication of a sharply polemical article under the title, Practice is the Sole Criterion of Truth. Huyao at that time was a deputy director of the party school in Beijing. Later that year, he insisted on granting freedom of speech to the people, and he also backed the democracy wall movement. I quote from Deng Xiaoping of the time, one thing a revolutionary party does need to worry about is its inability to hear the voice of the people. The thing to be feared most is silence, said he. And at that time, in 1977-78, he was the most liberal man in China. We know from uh, many documents and from members of many people around Deng Xiaoping from members of his speechwriters, that he always, when he talked to speechwriters, his speechwriters, he emphasized the ideas of liberalism. Okay, he would finish reading the speech they prepared, said, please make emphasis on liberalism, 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 freedom. Starting in late 1986, Gorbachev, in fact, began to do the same but then stopped his liberal reforms in March 1979 when he raised his infamous four cardinal principles. Defend the socialist path, the dictatorship of the proletariat, the leadership of the party, and Marxist-Leninism and Mao Zedong thought. But Gorbachev did not. Was it merely an accident? An accident? Obviously not. Then Xiaoping used liberal slogans for pure tactical cause. He wanted to defeat his main intra-party opponent, Chairman, uh, Chairman uh, Huago Fen, to establish his own authority in the CCP. Huas to others would not justify Den's return to party leadership. I quote from Den. If this principle, to others were correct, Den asserted, there could be no justification for my rehabilitation. At that time, he was not only uh, not in, uh, he was not in power, but he was also criticized, you know, for a le- uh, alleged mistake. Uh, the criticism started by Mao Zedong. That is why he began appealing to public opinion. It was a provocation, the best tradition of Chairman Mao. Chinese intellectuals again were shamely and cynically manipulated in the service of high politics to establish dense ascendancy of the party and state. By 1979, Hua was in fact overthrown, de facto, not formally, and then no longer needed liberalism. Now that he himself was in power, he no longer intended to allow any criticism. That is why in March 1979, he crushed the democracy wall movement and arrested Wei Jinshen and other dissidents. By the way, there are a special chapter about it in the book, uh, I used a lot, uh, you know, I interviewed Wei Jinshen, 
who lives in Washington D.C. and got some interesting information from you know about the movement. When Gorbachev initiated Glasnost, he was already a lawful general secretary with supreme power. He had as yet no real opposition to the Soviet Union, and the part in state bureaucracy followed him obediently. His glasses had different roots than, the of then, than that of then. He had to yield to the Western pressure at the time when he realized that he was about to lose the arms race. One should not underestimate the factor of the Cold War. At the start of Gorbachev's acceleration and perestroika in 1985, the Soviets were spending 40% of their budget on defense, while the Chinese at the beginning of their reforms in 1977 were spending 15%. In 1985, only 25.5% of the Soviet output went to consumer goods, whereas in 1928, it was 60.5%. The economy of the USSR got crippled under the burden of military expenditures. It was, that situa- it was this situation that virtually compelled Gorbachev to sit down at the table with Reagan in late 1986 to negotiate arms and limitations and to accept the American demands that he improved the human rights situation in the USSR. That is exactly why Gorbachev returned the head of the Soviet dissident movement, Andrei Sakharov, from exile to Moscow and initiated Glasnost. Right here. In December 1986, he returned uh, Andrei Sakharov. Once he did it, he in fact could not retreat. Any setback on that way could cause a new confrontation with the West and speed up the arms race that the Soviet budget could not endure. The situation was exacerbated by the fact that Gorbachev could not reduce his defense expenditures drastically and quickly, since doing so he would have caused massive unemployment. By 1989, the Soviets only managed to lower their defense expenditure to 32.76% of their budget. At the same time, Dan was skillfully playing on the contradictions between the two superpowers using the Americans and the Japanese to develop their economy. Uh, in, uh, in late 1978, Dan gave an interview to the American conservative columnist Robert Novak, and the whole world learned that the wise and dynamic, in quotation marks, Dan was hustling to create, in quotation marks, a rational economic and political system in his country and establish an alliance with the United States against Moscow. Then at that time, skillfully played with liberalism and presented himself, you know, uh, uh, as a liberal uh, reformer. Furthermore, in his interview for Time magazine given to the American journalists, Hedley Donovan and Marsh Clark, he called for stronger U.S.-China ties and the united front against Moscow. In early 1979, then himself made a very successful visit to the United States. Agreements were signed on scientific, technological, and cultural cooperation, student exchanges, and extending most favored nation trade status to the PRC. According to Zbigniew Brzezinski, Carter even supported Dan's forthcoming invasion of Vietnam. As Cyrus Vance, the Secretary of State, later said, Dan's visit was extravaganza, and understandably so. Consequently, by 1989, China's export to the United States increased from 9.7 billion U.S. dollars to 52.5 billion dollars. Second, in spite of the fact that both reformers understood the need to promote economic transformation, they had to deal with different economies. 
In the middle of the 1980s, one of the main reasons for the Soviet economic crisis, in addition to the arms race, was a drastic decline in world oil prices. I don't know if Michael Reagan is correct in his famous assertion that the U.S. president, his father, got the Saudis to flood the market with cheap oil to undercut the Kremlin wealth, but the Saudis did increase oil production by 2 million barrels a day, and it is clear that it was a heavy blow to the Soviet Union. In 1985, a barrel cost 29.5 U.S. dollars. And the next year, it was a bit over $10. So threefold okay, drop. Given that the share of oil in the Soviet total volume of export constituted 55% of the overall hard currency influx in 1984, 38.8% .8 in 1985, and 33% in 1987, uh, then the drop in oil prices, according to some estimate, cost Gorbachev 20 billion US dollars annually. It was so despite the Soviet's increase in the crude petroleum production in 1986 by 20 million tons and in 1987 by 9 million tons. Unlike the Soviets, the Chinese did not depend on oil export to nearly such an extent. To be true, in early 1978, Chairman Huago Fan planned to increase production of oil by three and a half times from 100 to 350 million tons to expedite oil export. At that time, oil prices were high. At that time, a barrel cost, uh, you know, 14.9 um, uh, US dollars, and in 1980, the price even increased to 39.5 dollars. The Soviets in 1980 produced 603 million tons of oil. So for comparison, Chinese 100, the Russians 603 million tons of oil. Hua also spoke of constructing 120 large industrial enterprises by 1985 and increasing steel production threefold from 20 to 60 million tons. However, the PRC could not implement this plan because it would have required colossal capital investments no less than uh, during the 30 preceding years of the PRC. So when in 1986 the oil prices dropped threefold, the PRC again was in a better situation than the USSR. Third, in spite of the fact that Denis Gorbachev both understood the need for agricultural development in their countries, Gorbachev could not follow the Chinese pattern of the household contract system. In the PRC, the agrarian reform was initiated spontaneously from below and then supported it only a year and a half later. In the spring of 1977, poor peasants in Guzheng County of Anhui province, eastern part of China, had begun experiment with family farming. Under such a contract, peasants rented land from the production brigade after which they handed over either the entire harvest to the state in exchange for payment in work days, or the larger part keeping the remainder for themselves, although without the right to sell it on the market. 
They were not permitted to decide for themselves what to plant. Instead, they received instructions from the brigade leadership, which supported them with tools, fertilizers, and seeds. Obviously, collective property in land didn't suffer at all that time, but the material incentives of the peasants increased. At the end of December 1978, a real peasant rebellion took place in Xiaogan village in Fenyan County, Ainghui. One night, representatives of 18 household, 21 peasants, who had gathered in a hay shed, decided to divide up the land of their production team among themselves on a completely individual basis. This contract implied that they were no longer willing to work for payment in work days. Instead, the peasants of Xiaogan proposed actually renting out the land from uh, that was the property of the brigade. The peasants decided to retain the excess production for themselves and did not exclude the possibility of selling the surplus in the market. They decided to determine themselves what crops were most advantageous to grow beyond the plan. They drafted a brief document that they not only signed but sealed with personal seals or just marked their fingers into the red mastic. This document actually is preserved in the museum of Xiaogan, uh, you know, in Ainghu. If you go there, there is a museum there, you can see this document with all these red marks. Uh, they could simply uh, stand it no longer. During all the years of communist power, the inhabitants of this poor village, Xiaogan, had been unable to break loose from their poverty. During the years of the Great Famine, 1958-62, 67 of the 120 persons then living in Xiaogan had died, and those who survived continued to balance on the knife edge of starvation. This was the condition of everyone living in Fenyang County. the uh, poorest in all of East China for centuries. Uh, People survived largely by begging in the nearby cities. Now they had taken extreme measures. Actually, this area in Ainghui province historically had been the poorest in China. Zhu Yuanzhan, the founder of the Ming Dynasty, was from this area, and both his parents died from starvation. So Dan was able to express himself publicly on the family contract system only in May 1980. Receiving President Sikuture of Guinea on the 5th of May, he informed his guest that in the past one to two years, we have begun to stress the need for the countryside to proceed from concrete conditions and to fix the system of production responsibility to work teams and individual peasant households. This has yielded noteworthy results and helped increase production several fold. On the 31st of May, he praised the peasants to the Anhui, of the Anhui counties who had shifted to family country. Then speeches were not published at the time, but they were quickly circulated to a wide circle of cadre via inter-party channels and greatly stimulated the growth of family contracts. The situation was entirely different in the Soviet Union. 
Unlike Chinese peasants, Russian farmers themselves didn't want the division of land. They were not dying of hunger. They grew everything they wanted on their private plots, both for themselves and for the local markets. They raised their own poultry and cattle, and they stole whatever they could from the collective farms. And this is absolutely true, because uh, during the Soviet times, I spent practically every summer in the south of the Ukraine, very close to the area that is now in flame, okay? And I can witness between us, don't tell anyone, okay? But it actually happened all the time, every day, they go to the uh, collective farm. By the end of the day, they carry apples, peaches, and so and so on for the local market. Practice everybody in the village I spent my summers. So, uh, according to some estimates, in December 1989, only 10% of Soviet Kalkhozniki collective farm members approved household contract system, whereas 50% resolutely opposed this. As a matter of fact, the Russian collectivized peasants, unlike Chinese members of people's communes, long ago lost their ability for productive labor on a large scale. That was a result of the most devastating collectivization in the late 1920s, early 1930s. In the Soviet Union, collectivization started the second edition of the, Cold War, or the Civil War, in which the entire class of well-to-do peasants was abolished physically. In China, however, even during the bloodiest land reform of 1950-53, the well-to-do peasants were not liquidated as a class. In 1955-56, during Maoist collectivization, the scale of peasant resistance was nowhere near that in the Soviet Union during Stalin collectivization. On the whole, socialism came rather peacefully to the Chinese countryside. The well-to-do peasants, Funung, after losing their property, entered the collective farms rather than being physically eliminated. They were dispersed among the huge masses of rural population, and first in the early 1960s, and then in the early 1970s, these people and their children managed to promote the household contract system. Fourth, the situation in cities was likewise different. Soviet manual laborers were not willing to abandon state paternalism. In addition, due to the anti-alcoholic campaign that Gorbachev started in 1985, Gorbachev's population among them collapsed from the very beginning. Popularity. Popularity, yeah. What did I say? Popularity. Gorbachev popularity... Population increased as a result. Yeah, of, you know, yeah. Gorbachev population... The, the population didn't increase because people spent all the time in queues, you know, to buy vodka. So, uh, Gorbachev popularity, of course, among them collapsed. In the Chinese special economic zones, it was Huaxiao, overseas Chinese, who were the primary investors. Chinese have a clan consciousness. For them, the motherland is not simply an object of uh, patriotic feelings, but a concrete expression of family. Therefore, for Hua Xiao, investing in the economy of the People's Republic of China means both helping the country and their own extended family. It was their money that made Shenzhen, Zhuhai, and other special economic zones grow. Could the Russians have established special economic zones even had Gorbachev des desired to do so? 
it seems highly improbable. The relationship of various waves of Russian immigrants to the motherland is entirely different from that of Chinese Huatsiao. In addition, most uh, Russian immigrants are not basically Russians. The Jewish, uh, uh, Poles, uh, Ukrainians, and stuff like this. Fifth, at the foundation of the Chinese miracle has been the extraordinary cheapness of Chinese labor. Then openly and rather cynically observed that China's, I quote, advantage consists of the uh, comparative cheapness of our labor force. Even at the time of Deng's death, the average wage of a Chinese worker was just over 2% of that in the U.S. and 5% of that in Taiwan. Soviet workers, even at the beginning of the reform, refused to work for such pitiful compensation. Six, even the cadre in China were different from the Soviets. Till the end of his days, the tyrant Mao kept the cadres in check. Perhaps strange to say, but the nightmare that was the Cultural Revolution at least had the positive effect of restraining the potential for self-indulgence of the Chinese ruling elite. The Chinese Gainbu cadre under Mao was not corrupted to nearly the degree that the rotten Soviet nomenclatura cadre was during Brezhnev's rule. It was precisely the Soviet nomenclatura that destroyed the Soviet Union, uh, pilfering the national wealth and making themselves and only themselves super rich. Finally, in promoting the reforms, Gorbachev had only one social group uh, that could expedite them. That was the Russian intelligentsia. Zhivaga children, as Vlad Zubok named them in the book. As a social embodiment of people's conscience, they saw their main and immediate task as the settling of scores with Stalinism. They called upon the whole society for repentance, without which there could be neither absolution nor purification. At the same time in China, a vanguard of the then reforms consisted of peasants who were interested only in material gains. Therefore, Deng had a much easier time than Gorbachev in dealing with a market economy. Consequently, when he determined to crush the um, uh, liberal opposition in 1989, I'm talking about Tiananmen Massacre, he could count on receiving solid support from the army, the gainbu, the fast-growing middle class, and well-to-do peasants. He revitalized China's economy, but he didn't become China's Gorbachev, a Russian westernizer who was praised by the likes of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher for promoting liberalism in Russia around the same time that Deng Xiaoping was massacring liberal students. But could Deng have become China's Gorbachev? No, he could not. It was, only because, it was not only because Deng himself was unlike Gorbachev, but he, and he was unable to overcome entirely his totalitarian worldview, more importantly because the country he ruled was significantly different from the Soviet Union. That's why Deng became the reformer of Chinese socialism, not its grave digger. Thank you for your attention.
invitation of those who are leaving. You know, uh, I and we still have time to discuss uh, some things that uh, I was very obedient. Yes, you were very very obedient. You improved towards the end, right? Uh, and uh, what you said is interesting because you mentioned that uh, something in Russia influenced Dan Xiaoping in the 20s. Bukharin, you know, early thought on how, how communist party could be combined with market, uh, with market relationship. That's right. But then lived a long life since the 1920s. Uh, could you uh, add to the story of what influenced him? Uh, I have a conflicting impression, at least from the speech. I know the book will be different, but the speech gives us an impression of Dan having some ideas. But then you gave us a different Dan, who is opportunist, who has no principles, who just uh, tries to react to what already is in the society, such as the beginning of the movement in agrarian zone. He, he's picking on that to promote himself. So did, was there something that you can add to this story? Yeah, un, sure. Unprincipled un opportunist? Or he had a vision? Okay, very good question. Okay, I will stand up because I cannot see everyone. Okay. So, uh, thank you for the question, it's a good question. Uh, actually, uh, when I began to write a book, okay, uh, of course I read many books about Dan Xiaoping and Chinese and American and, and so on, and I got an impression, uh, conventional impression that Dan was a great economic uh, thinker. Okay? So, and he himself developed uh, reform and stuff like this. Uh, actually, when I began to uh, study documents uh, very, very carefully, I came to the conclusion that then, as you said, indeed had strategic visions. Okay, let's explain. Then himself mentioned that he uh, got uh, Marxist education only in Russia. He had no time to study Marxism. He had no time to study not only Marxism, but uh, uh, political economy, okay? um, uh, sociology, and uh, uh, you know, uh, history of the revolutionary movement, stuff like this. Indeed, he spent in Russia a year. He arrived in January 1926, and he left Russia in, 19, in January 1927. Before that, he lived in uh, France. Okay? Uh, for uh, almost uh, five and a half years. He came to France to study, for a study abroad, but it was a period of recession and uh, unemployment, and he actually couldn't find uh, uh, real jobs. You know, he worked, but it was just, uh, you know, for some weeks. And most of the time, uh, he uh, <clears throat> was unemployed, you see, and uh, uh, he had no money to go to college, you see. He brought money, the whole idea was I will work, I will save money, and I will pay for my tuition, you see. But he didn't work, so he had no money. His father gave him money when he, you know, traveled to France. But, you know, it, it finished. 
He was a young guy. He liked coffee. He liked croissant. He liked to go to cafeteria. You see what I mean? He spent all the money. You see? And uh, uh, then he just uh, uh, lived in Paris. Uh, uh, they gave him five francs a day. You know, this, that was a Chinese uh, center. And that's it. And he was really frustrated. You see? So then he came to Moscow with paradise. You see, it was new economic policy. You see? So indeed, it was an economic boom. Restaurant opened, you know, they were students at Sun Yat-sen University. They had absolutely everything. They even have a Chinese cook, you see. <laughs> indeed, because they were tired of European, you know, uh, and they, they, they ask and they, they hire, you know, a Chinese cook, so they had an option. So, and uh, he, the only thing he had to, to go to the library and read books. And he did it. And I have uh, uh, all these characteristics that he was the excellent student, the great student, the great organizer. His wife, the first wife, he, she was also a student. She was a C student. I found her record, C. Okay. But he was an A student. I don't know, you have the same like in America, A, B, C? Yes, yeah. pretty much. So anyway, so, uh, and it was the only time. When he got back to China, he began to work, you know, in the army, then uh, he was uh, working in the Central Committee, then he was a leader in the, um, of the Soviet movement in the uh, southwestern part, then, you, you know what I'm talking about, the London March and, you know, the, the, the war, he had no time at all, you know. So, I checked, you know, I examined uh, this period based on the archives, what he read, uh, how, and so and so, all his grades. At that time, the major subject was on socialism in Russia, the history of Bolshevism, and they focused on new economic policy. So this idea, you know, came to his mind. He, uh, he got the idea of socialism from his teachers, you see. Then he, uh, he was the master of uh, uh, southwest of China, Sichuan, you know, Yunnan, Tibet, this area. In the early 50s, during the land reform, it was the period of new democracy in China. New democracy. Okay, uh, new democracy, uh, pre-socialist, you see. So he was in charge in economics, but this was new democratic economics. You see what I mean? Okay, so they did not expropriate property of well-to-do peasants. They persecuted landlords, right? You, you know what I'm talking about. So anyway, he was, uh, again, he was dealing with the uh, economy that was close to the same kind of economy he got the, the impression. Then, okay, as I mentioned in the book, and it was one of my uh, favorite uh, discoveries, I'm very happy that I came to this point, because in many, many books about Deng Xiaoping, you can read that he began to oppose Mao in the 50s, uh, 1956, the 8th Congress of the Communist Party, okay, he criticized the cult of personality in his report, okay? This is well known. I mean, indeed, he is a uh, you know speaker on the um, party uh, charter. He criticized the cult of personality. You know, just Khrushchev criticized Stalin. He criticized the cult of personality. And uh, everybody who wrote about this said, "Look, Mao was not pleased, so Mao didn't like it." 
You see, and indeed, during the Cultural Revolution, Mao still, you know, had this idea and talked to the Gen of Four and said, ah, I remember that Dan criticized me. You see, and they didn't show me the text of the report. He lied. Because we know that he corrected the report, you know, there are Mao Zedong corrections, you know, published already. He just lied. But anyway, but this is not true. I mean, the art of, in 1961, 1962, his famous phrase, it doesn't matter what color of the cat. You remember this? Yeah, it doesn't matter what color of the cat. The most important, the cat must catch mice, okay? So and, uh, most people look, look. He opposes Mao. Mao Zedong got back, uh, you know, from Hangzhou, attacked Deng Xiaoping, attacked Liu Shaoqi, attacked Zhou Enlai, Chen Yun, and stuff like this. Okay, this is true. But what actually happened when you carefully examine documents? Mao Zedong created a totalitarian system. He was the emperor. Okay, and as soon as he got to power in June 9 high, in 1949, he began to behave as an emperor. Some kind of uh, half-emperor, half-Daoist, Confucianist philosopher. You see, he spent most of his time in his bedroom. Huge bedroom, if you ever visited Junan High, you can, you can see. So half of the bed was always covered with books. <laughs> Another bed, Mao was in this bed lying, okay? He woke up actually at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, okay? And would receive members of the political bureau in his bedroom, okay? He was in his underwear, okay? Lying in his bed and breakfast, you see? Okay, Chinese, see fine, you see, see fine, he like to eat, you know, like this, you see, okay. And here, Deng Xiaoping, he was, he, he didn't hear, uh, uh, he had problems with his hearing, so he was always close to the pillow, okay. He was the first sitting here. Then, Joe and Lai, thank you, Joe and Lai, uh, you know, Jude didn't attend because... Mao didn't respect him. And anyway, Chen Yun, and so you see Liu Shao, they listened. But Mao always spoke something like this. They would come to him and ask, Chairman Mao, what to do? I don't know, whatever. Okay, India take China, whatever. What should we do with the Soviet Union? <laughs> and Mao would say, what can we do? <laughs> Rain would still fall down. Widows would still get married. <laughs> and that's it. So, and they would go out and would think, what did he say? What should we do? You see what I mean? The art, art of politics in totalitarian China, not only in China, the Soviet Union, in any totalitarian country, was to understand the leader, what the leader wants to do, otherwise you will make a mistake. And it can be faith, faithful, you see. So every time then then, okay, on the surface looked like he was opposed now, you see, with his, for example, he, uh, 1956 speech, when he said, okay, our party is against cult of personality, stuff like They discussed the cult of personality issue before I have the records of the political bureau meetings and secretariat. When Deng Xiaoping came back from the 20th Congress of the Communist Party, 
Okay, you know Khrushchev didn't give them the text of the speech. Okay, they just uh, he just sent a representative who read the speech to him, translated, translated. They just listened, Judea, uh, you know, Densia uh, Alpin, and that's it. And he said, okay, you listen, go. Okay, and he didn't give them the speech. So Densia Alpin came and just said what he remembered. You see, then they got the speech. Oh, yeah, I know. Maybe more questions, yeah. I'm just talking, you know, some stories. You That's see, funny. you like stories, yeah? <laughs> so, and uh, 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 you see, that's interesting because they got the text of the speech from Americans. New York Times published the text of the speech in, uh, uh, you know, translated from the Russian copy that the CIA got in Poland. You see, that was like this. They translated, then Chinese translated from English. That's how Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping read the speech. You see. And they already discussed, and they decided that Dan would say this. You see? So, it was not correct when Mao Zedong... And Mao Zedong himself, after this speech, it was Mao Zedong who promoted Deng Xiaoping to be the general secretary. It was Mao Zedong's idea. He took the floor, okay, and said, I promote Deng Xiaoping. He looks like me. <laughs> exactly true. He looks like me. You know, he has some contradictions. Some people, some of you are scared of Deng Xiaoping, but you're scared of me also, you see. But you still vote for me. So, how about Deng Xiaoping? I think you will vote for him. He would be a good chief of staff, you see. Uh, then, of course, like Chinese said, nali nali, bugain dang, bugain dang. You see, no, no, okay, I cannot be. But, of course, he liked it, you see. So he became the general secretary. Then with this cats, okay. Again, when it was a great leap forward, famine, and uh, uh, they discussed what to do, you see. And they received information that, you know, people in Anhui province began to divide land spontaneously again, you see. And Mao didn't say yes or no, you see what I mean. He didn't say it's good, he didn't say it's bad. He just said, okay, do it. So it's all about rain. Then Absolutely, it's all about rain, you know, and widows. They will make. And he said, okay, do it, and I will go and get some rest in Hangzhou, you see. And now they got together, Liu Xiaoqi, Chen Yun, Deng Xiaoping, Zhou Lai, you know, immediately they had the meeting and they decided, what to do, you see? Mao said nothing. <laughs> so, and they, Chen Yun said, it's a good idea. You know, Zhou Lai said, it's a good idea. Liu Xiaoqi said, it's a good idea. Deng Xiaoping said, okay, how about cats? You see? <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> then, and they, they okayed it. Then Mao learned about it, sent his secretary, okay? to uh, Hunan province, he made, uh, you know, inquiries, you know, investigation, got back, okay, and said, look, it's a good idea, you know, the peasants like it. But Mao or Sana said, no, the peasants want land and freedom, we want socialism. <laughs> okay, that's exactly what he said, I quote. So, and then he left Hangzhou, got back to Beijing, and first attacked Joy, uh, Liu Xiaoqi, Liu Xiaoqi visited him out on the swimming pool, okay, swimming. And he got out of the swimming pool, he said, what's going on? Ah, you're a traitor, you know, what's going on? I, I, I left and you be 
began to rebuild capitalism. You know, division of land from, for Mao means revival of capitalism. You see? And uh, uh, then he attacked Deng Xiaoping, and Deng Xiaoping, he coined this phrase about cats. At the meeting of the, uh, at the Congress of the Communist Youth League, Hui Aoban was the general secretary of the Communist Youth League. And there was in the stenographic record, you see, of the conference. Immediately then called Hui Aoban and said, delete the cats, delete the cats from the stenographic records, you see. <laughs> they deleted the cats, but... It was in a Some cats public yeah, memory, <laughs> no cats, you know, kitties survived. So you see, that was the point. So at the, when he made mistakes, you know, like with this cat, it's just because he didn't understand what Mao wanted, you see. There was another story, but we have no time because you have many questions. Please. Well, I'm yeah. trying to be a dictator, but since it's impossible, it's so, so interesting. Uh, maybe I will open the floor. We don't have much time, but you know, I'm sure there will be questions. Please. Yes. Why don't you start? Thanks for an absolutely brilliant, fascinating Thank you. talk. I'm um, interested, well, I'm interested in a lot of things, but I want to focus on the peasants. Yeah. Because, as you, as you said, in China, at various times, but in the late 1970s is the important time, the Chinese actually wanted to divide up the collective farm, the, the communes, mm -hmm. and have the household responsibility system. And in Russia, that wasn't popular. It wasn't a... Yes, it wasn't a bottom-up uh, possibility. And my question is, why do you think that was? Is it... Could it be that less time had elapsed, like in, even in 1977-78, is less than 30 years after the mm -hmm. establishment of the Communist Party rule, whereas once you get to Gorbachev, it's 70 years since 1917? Mm -hmm. Or is there maybe a cultural thing? Because in Russia, they had this agricultural collectivism tradition of the Mir, of redistributing land and... and a less individualistic peasant culture, or what are your ideas on that? I, I would be, uh, it would be a good idea to ask more oh, several oh, okay, questions. Then I will write down. You okay. will have the rest no. of your time. Okay. Yes. Could you get the mic to the middle? Yes, please. Hi, I just have a question uh, for you to, to see if you can clarify a little bit. When um, Deng Xiaoping started the market reform, did he really see it as a means? to kind of like, you know, reform the Chinese economy? Or did he really believe in the sort of like liberal market system? Because like what you said, when it comes to politics. I understand. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, okay, mm -hmm. uh, one more. We can take one more. Yes, please. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Professor. Uh, so personally, I was educated in China, and uh, a lot of uh, what you said is quite different um, from what I was taught in China, because uh, to us, really, this man is a revolutionary hero. And, of course. Uh, uh, and I agree with you. It's true that you know, many Chinese uh, politicians, uh, they didn't really receive some formal education in Marxism or in like, communism. Um, but I think um, there's always there's another interpre interpretation to say uh, like maybe Deng is not an uh, opportunist. Maybe uh, he is a, a, a visionary. Maybe mm -hmm. he is uh, he's just being practical. And uh, I, I, I think uh, um, I, I think your interpretation of uh, Chinese history is uh, I, mean, I mean it kind of reminds me of uh, the Soviet superiority you know theory. So that that, that is I think that that is. Uh, partially what caused 
the, the, the great uh, Sino-Soviet split uh, because at the moment many Chinese leaders actually thought many Soviet that many Soviet thinkers uh, thought you know the Chinese were kind of inferior and was, you know that kind of thing. So so I, I, I'm not sure like what would you uh, react to you know respond to uh, you know this criticism. You are just being you know like some some you you just you're just an advocate of uh, you know uh, the Soviet superiority you know, over the Chinese the kind of uh, theorist, do, do you understand what my question? Uh, the question is. Uh, what's the question? What's the question? <laughs> yes. Could you summarize? Oh, okay. so, so uh, try again. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I think I think your depiction of uh, Chinese history uh, reminds me of uh, some uh, uh, Soviet uh, critics, you know, saying that you know that the Chinese communists uh, were kind of inferior to, 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 the, to the Soviet ones. Mm. Because I talk about the commentary. Okay. Yeah, yeah. What, what's your response to it? Okay. If I may, also the last thing that surprised me is the absence of Dan's trip to the West in 78, 79. He saw the United States. He saw Japan. Did it have any effect at all? I was surprised that you didn't say anything about it. Um, about what? About his impressions. Well, you said that Russia in the 20s was paradise for him because he had a Chinese cook. Okay. How about Japan in 1978? I think I talk about his trip to the United States. Did I? Mm, I don't think so. Yeah, You didn't mention <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Everybody listen. <laughs> okay. 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 So the first question. Thank you for the question. It's probably the most important question, you know, because uh, the peasantry uh, at the time of the reforms constituted 80% of the Chinese population. So that's why I emphasize that the vanguard of the Chinese reform was peasantry, you know, not uh, intellectuals. Uh, there are many, many different reasons. Okay. Uh, for example, as I uh, mentioned in my report, in passing actually, but I try to emphasize, uh, there are two different uh, types of collectivization. In the Soviet Union, it was a great fighting, and uh, the whole well-to-do class vanished. So this is the major tragedy of my country, Russia, because we still feel it, you see, and the cause of the great economic uh, failure and stuff like this, uh, you know, any reformer, Gorbachev, anybody else would come and say, okay, take land, but nobody wanted to do it. You see, they uh, attach to paternalistic system, uh, to welfare, and uh, you see, they lost ability because the class of producers, well-to-do peasants, physically liquidated. You know, but it's a special art. You know, you you can inherit it in genes. You know how to give me a tract of land. I don't know what to do with this. You see what I mean? So in China, it was absolutely different. You see? Yeah, it was bloodiest uh, land reform. And then, by the way, then, by the way, the great revolutionary hero, as you say, yeah, was the bloodiest reformer in 1950, 51, 52. You see? In his area, okay, uh, you know, if we compare with other areas, uh, Guangdong, you know, uh, Hebei and other areas, most people were killed in uh, Southwest. And even Mao Zedong intervened and sent a message in order to then say, our had stop it. You cannot kill so many people, you see, in this area. Because it was 45, 50 people a day. Mao Zedong said that eight would be enough. And then, <laughs> then reported, okay, 
we already killed A, not, not more. Okay, <laughs> so you, you see what I mean. So, uh, there's one more. Uh, but still, they did not eliminate well-to-do peasants. The land reform was against landlords, you know, and some upper class funun, you see. Well, during the collectivization, it was not like this, not like in Russia. The collectivization, of course, you know, communists would come to the countryside. They would go, they would do what in some areas? They would call a meeting, peasants, okay, like, I don't know, 100% humidity, okay, like uh, 80, 85, 90 degree in Fahrenheit, you see, or cold. And they would stay in the plaza for days. The communists did not let them go, you see. And then they would sign, you know, applications and would join it. The uh, Funun, well-to-do peasant, would lose their property, but they would save their head, you see what I mean? And then they would just ground it, you know, among the peasants, but they would preserve, you know, this. Then, uh, that's one reason. Second reason, uh, the level of poverty in China. The end of the 70s, then the reforms commenced, you see. The Chinese peasants, 250 million people starving, you know, they were starving, you see. Uh, most peasants, not only in Xiaogan, they just survived because they, they begged, you see. They would go to cities and beg, you see. So, uh, and they, they just could not live like this any longer. And they began to divide land. You know, these 21 guys, you know, they held a meeting in secret. They were very naive. They believed that next spring they divide land, nobody knew. But of course, you know, the, the party secretary immediately informed, you know, uh, the leaders. But they were lucky because the head of the Anhui Provincial Committee was Wang Li. And Wang Li was a liberal-minded reformer, you know, and he backed the initiative. But it, everything came from below. And here, there, and blah, 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 and then it spread, okay? And uh, then did not support this reform, for political reasons, by the way. You see, we're talking about vision, whatever, you see. He didn't talk about this reform. He already had enough with cats, you see. But the problem, come on, it was very important, because then the Cultural Revolution, Mao never forgot cats. Never, never. Before he died, he talked about cats. <laughs> it's, it, it, it's true, you know, when the second uh, downfall of Deng Xiaoping, you know, he talked to the, uh, his uh, nephew, Mao Yuan-Sing, and he said, ah, I remember Deng Xiaoping with his cats. Okay. And then uh, it was 1975, at the end, you see, he started the new campaign and Deng Xiaoping. So it was not vision, it was, uh, you know, he was playing game. 1978, you know, revolution in the countryside from below. 78, he said nothing about it. 79, said nothing about it. Why? Because he was engaged in the fight, intra-party fight against the left, against those who backed Hu Yaoban. You see, just imagine, under these circumstances, if then said in 1979, it's good, let's divide land. Then his opponents, leftists, would say, ah, Mao was right, he's a capitalist roader. You see, he didn't want to give it, you see. He basically, you know, back in his soul, he, was, he agreed with the peasants. You see, he did not intervene and he didn't say no, but he didn't say yes for political reasons. But in May 1980, okay, 
about to rehabilitate Lucia Outsea, and he was talking about, you know, began to think about the resolution on the uh, CPC history and stuff like this, you, you know? So Hua uh, uh, was down already. So he could say this, you see. So uh, another reason. When Deng Xiaoping said, okay, it's good to divide land, everybody began to divide land because it's a totalitarian system. The chief said, divide, everybody began to divide, even in Manjuria. But the, the, the agricultural situation in Manjuria is different, you see. And for, uh, it, it's much better to have huge farms in Manjuria, collective farms, you see, rather than in uh, uh, the areas of wet rice cultivation. You, you know what I'm talking about. Different agriculture. But they began to divide land everywhere, you see. In Russia, Russian situation, you know, agriculture is closer to Manjuria, you know, the, you know, the, the existence of the, you know, for machinery and stuff like this, you know, no wet, wet rice cultivation, a different agricultural agriculture, you see what I mean? So that's another reason why it's not popular in Russia, you see. So uh, coming uh, back to the visions, you know, both questions and you also. So I wouldn't say yes and no, you see. My idea, my impression, what I know about Dan. Dan was not an economist in, uh, uh, like, you know, you guys, because you're a student of uh, LSE. You see, you study economy, you know, methods and stuff like this, you know, plan, uh, market, and, and, and you, you know, microeconomic, microeconomic. He didn't understand anything in this, you see. But he understand that uh, uh, you cannot jump to socialism immediately from uh, cap from uh, from feudalism. You see what I mean? So he he understood these historical materialistic ideas that he observed while in Moscow. Basic ideas of Marxism. You see what I mean? This. Ideas. You cannot bypass any of the stages. Slavery, feudalism, capitalism, socialism. So China is quite backwards. That's the whole idea. You see, China is quite backwards. So we need to develop means of production. So to develop means of production, you need uh, private property. You need to revive economic incentives. It's all about incentives. You see what I mean? So that was his basic strategic ideas. He was a strategist rather than tactician. You see what I mean? He didn't, he didn't understand tactical economic measures, but he had uh, economic uh, strategic vision. You see what I mean? But still, <clears throat> uh, uh, in this book, there is a special chapter about Bukharin's view on, on Dan Xiaoping, you know, because indeed it's, Buh yeah. Yeah, it's, indeed it's Bukharin's views, you know. Bukharin was one of the theorists of new economic policy in Russia, the major theorist, but he differed from Lenin concepts of new economic policy. Lenin, when he talked about new economic policy, okay, uh, he always uh, emphasized that here we have state capitalism, you see. He talked about state capitalism, state capitalism, you see. Bukharin criticized Lenin at the meeting of the political bureau and said, why are you talking about state capitalism? Why are you talking about capitalism? Lenin said, because we have market. But Bukharin said that market 
is not, uh, uh, you know, equal to capitalism. You see, market can exist under socialism also. You see, so it's not a major characteristic of capitalism. The major characteristic of capitalism is the capitalist property. You see what I mean? So, and they quarreled, okay, Lenin Bukharin. By the end, by the way, uh, in his last writings, Lenin accepted this idea. But the major concept of NAP, of Lenin, state capitalism. What Chen Yun, by the way, he was the first, and then Deng Xiaoping, what did they, uh, how did they start reforms? The first Chen Yun dropped the idea that we can develop market. You see, market is not you know, capitalism. It's not, only, not, under, not, uh, not a synonym to capitalism, you see. Then, then pick up idea from Chen Yun, you see, and begin to develop. And for the first time, he used Chen Yun, the major authority in economy, you see. He used his authority, you know. And he, uh, you know, in, in, uh, they, they had a united front against Hua Gofen, and he always relied on Chen Yun. Chen Yun developed this system, you see. And then, Okay, then he switched to Zhao Ziyang, who was much more radical than Chen Yun, and they quarreled with Zhao Ziyang. And Zhao Ziyang began to talk about the um, guided planning, about the infusion of plan and, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, plan and market, and the, um, the, the right of uh, value theory and stuff like this, you see? So he switched to, to uh, Zhao Ziyang, and he relied on his idea. But he he, his um, uh, achievement that he blocked the left, you see, he did not let the left radicals stop the reformers, you see. He used his personal power and authority, to, not because he understood every step, you see, like reforms of prices and stuff. He didn't understand anything in this. He just trusted Zhao Ziyang, you see. And then we had a crisis of 1986-87. But he, uh, you see what I mean? But he gave them the green light. You see what I mean? Okay, let's do it. Okay, I'm not, uh, yeah, about China-Soviet uh, uh, split. We have a few, just a few seconds. Just one second, yes. okay. <laughs> okay. 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 Of course, I do not emphasize... I do, I do not want to talk, talk about Russia's superiority. Yeah, not that's at all. That's important. Let's that's talk important. about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but when you go to the archives, you will notice that in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, okay, the Chinese Communist Party was totally under the common turn, even under Mao Zedong. Do you know, by the way, why do you have Beijing as the capital of China? Why Beijing, not Nanjing? Do you know who decided that Beijing will be the capital of China in 1949? It was Stalin, by the way, my dear friend. Because Mao Zedong wrote to him, and I have this letter, wrote to Stalin and said, Comrade Stalin, he called him Master. Okay? Master Stalin, dear Master, what do you think? Nanjing or Beijing will be the capital? And he wrote back, Beijing, you see? Why did he say Beijing? <laughs> To him. Okay. <laughs> we can speculate. We can speculate. Yeah, it's close to him. It's my favorite town, for example, in, in China. 
uh, I like Kutums, you know, probably that was the reason, you see what I mean. But he said Beijing, you see what I mean. So he consulted about absolutely everything. You know, in 1949, he wrote to Mao, said, Comrade Stalin, that's enough of new democracy. Okay, that's enough. Uh, let's kill them all. Okay, I mean, the middle class. And Stalin said, no, don't do it. The first meeting between Stalin and Mao Zedong in the Kremlin, okay, December 16, 1949. Mao said, you know, I have stenographic records. What did they talk about? First about America, how bad America is, okay, and then he asked Stalin, how about new democracy? I'm fed up with this. You see, let's stop it. Let's start a socialist revolution. Let's follow the Russian way. Stalin said, no, you see. How about collectivization? No, no, no. You see what I mean? So, up to this point, yeah. Okay. When you read Mao Zedong, uh, his reaction to, uh, you know, the denunciation of Stalin, the first reaction was positive. He welcomed, you know, the denunciation of Stalin in 1956. Okay, guys, thank you. Sorry. Well, I think it was fascinating.